Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. For more than 200 years, American workers have used labor strikes as a tool to convince employers to meet their demands. The same goes for workers who unionize. Last year, more than 16 million workers in the United States were represented by a union. That includes some of you. This is Joe, and I was a UAW member for 46 years. And although not perfect, my union really negotiated well for me in health care, in retirement, and everything else. Hey, my name's Nathan. I'm a member of the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, Local 382, here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I work on the maintenance crews that take care of railroad tracks and rails, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for our union because they've pushed for pay and benefits to match the hazard of working near live, active rails. Without them, because it is a government-funded agency, pay would be significantly less, and they've pushed for increased safety. Even though federal safety standards are fairly strict, I appreciate what my union's done to make sure that I go home at the end of the day. Joe, Nathan, thanks for those messages. What power do unions have to affect change in the workplace, and are more or fewer unions in our future? We'll get into those questions and a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our discussion in just a moment. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Joining us in studio is Kate Bond. She's the director of research at WorkRise. That's an initiative at the Urban Institute focused on wage growth and career advancement for workers with low incomes. Kate, it's great to have you back. I'm so excited to be here. Also with us is Eric Loomis. He's a labor historian and professor at the University of Rhode Island. He's also the author of A History of America and Ten Strikes. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So last year, only about 10% of American workers belonged to a union. That's data from the Department of Labor. And it's the lowest membership rate on record. Eric, what's what's going on? Yeah, basically, it's tremendously difficult to form a union. Uh, you know, right now we're seeing this uh, uptick in, in interest in unions. Unions are more popular than they ever have been before, at least according to polling. Um, and many workers, such as we've seen in the Starbucks uh, struggle in Amazon, at, at Apple, other companies are, are trying to form unions. Um, but the reality is, is that the, the system of labor law in America is broken. Um, it is effectively controlled by corporations. Um, and so if you file for a union, um, and you, even if you vote for a union, actually winning a union contract uh, is very, very, very difficult. Employers can engage in all sorts of activities to uh, stop you from forming a union. They can force you to sit, on, uh, sit in on uh, anti-union meetings. Uh, they can intimidate you. Um, Legally, they can't fire you, but then they do fire you, and, and maybe eventually that worker gets their job back, 
after a, a long period of time in which that worker has to find some other way to live. Uh, and then even if you do vote in for that uh, vote for that union, uh, the employer could delay and delay before ever having to sign a first contract. Um, and so the reality is, is that the much like it was 100 years ago, the system of government is really geared against uh workers being able to form and win unions. Well, union membership is increasing, Kate, up to 173,000 workers from 2021 to 2022. But if you look at it within the context of the labor market, non-union jobs are still growing at a faster rate. Why Mm -hmm. is that? I think, you know, what Eric said is absolutely true, that it is harder to join, to organize and get a collective bargaining agreement um, for the reasons you described. But additionally, there's been changing structures in our economy that I think contribute to this faster growth of non-union work. A big one is what's called the fissured workplace. So often people are working for companies that might not be um, who own their workplace. A classic example for is like an office cleaner. And so when you're an office cleaner, typically your employer is someone else who's not owning the building that you are cleaning, who's not probably even the workplace you're cleaning for. And in those situations, it's really hard for workers to be able to exercise power on the job, organize with each other, talk to their employers, to to engage in collective action. And so I think some of those bigger structures in the economy, how employment relationships have fundamentally changed over the past 40 years or so, also make it much harder to form a union. Let's head over to our inbox. My name is Bill. I'm, I'm not against unions. I'm not necessarily for them. But the big deal is when you see those people from the unions out in front of buildings and they have their big signs, it's because they lost the bid, because their bid is too high. Unions tend to be extremely expensive. Um, and what they really need to do is they need to, to be more competitive and talk to these workers who are out there on the, on the picket lines, talk to their, their management and say, guys, we're losing these contracts because we're way too much money. Union workers tend to be very good workers. But if you follow all the breaks and all the lunches and all the vacations and everything else, there's no way you can compete against a private company. Bill, thanks for that message. Kate, how do you respond to that? I hear that that point, and I think that's a really common perception. But when we look at the economic research, it is very clear from a plethora of research that workers are not actually paid the value they contribute to production, the value they contribute in the workplaces, the value they contribute to the economy. And so I think when we when we have that bigger context, we know workers are actually really underpaid in our economy. And so in that, when that happens, unions are really good ways when workers can exercise their voice to rebalance that and make sure that workers are earning a fair wage that is equal to the value they contribute. Eric, historically, how common is that argument about the expensive unions and, and competi- competitiveness? Yeah, it's, it's, often been, um, it's often been pushed by uh, employers and, uh, and by newspapers and other media. Um, and uh, it's had a lot of power in American society. I mean, we have to remember that one of our sort of foundational figures in American uh, mythology is a, a guy named Horatio Alger, who pushed a narrative of pulling, quote, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, even though this was an era of massive income inequality. Um, you know, as Kate says, it, 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 these arguments just flat out aren't true. The evidence does not support it in any way, shape, or form. Um, however, these pro-business myths um, about uh, uh, how unions make companies uh, uncompetitive are a tremendously powerful part 
of an American national myth about uh, the way the economy works. And that is one of the things that unions do have to uh, fight sometimes with uh, their own potential members who who may well believe these things. Well, as we've been covering here on 1A, Hollywood is at a standstill amid the Writers Guild of America strike that's poised to enter its third month. And now actors and other workers represented by SAG-AFTRA have joined them on the picket line. Now, we should note that some staff members at NPR and WAMU, our parent station, are represented by SAG-AFTRA's radio broadcasters division, so they're not subject to the contract in question. Writers and actors aren't the only workers striking. There was a 52% increase in strikes across the U.S. from 2021 to 2022. That's according to analysis from Cornell University. Some education, healthcare, and other service workers have also stopped working after stalled contract negotiations. Eric, what, if anything, is unique about this moment in labor organizing? Yeah, I mean, well, I think what's unique is that is that we have an income inequality that's the highest it's been in a century, um, and that you know that anger over the level of income inequality is really spread through the entire economy. Um, that whether you are even if you do have a union, um, that doesn't mean that you have been able to negotiate a fair wage in this economy, right? You know, as, as Kate mentioned earlier, the production of workers is tremendously high. Uh, and the benefits and wages that they're getting for that production have gone down. Um, and so you see CEOs and other top uh, administrators of corporations making record uh, record uh, salaries. Uh, companies like UPS are making record profit. Uh, and you know you have workers at, at UPS uh, who don't even have uh, who, who don't even have uh, air conditioning in their trucks, right? And so they obviously are not going to be very happy about the situation in which they face. And you see this, I think, in education. You see this with the Starbucks workers campaign. You see this in Hollywood. You see an entire economy of people realizing that, hey, you know, we're not getting a fair shake. We're not getting the wages that we deserve. And uh, you know, those of uh, those who have a union have an organization to do something about that. And so they're in a position to do a lot more than those workers who don't have unions. And I think that's a lot of why you're seeing this strike wave. That's, it's important to note that not all industries or workers are allowed to strike. Kate, what laws limit the ability of workers to walk out of the job? There's a number of laws that um, limit the ability of workers to walk out of the job or picket. So, for example, when I brought up a, um, an office cleaner, there are laws that would prevent an office cleaner from picketing in front of the building they work in because that building is not owned by their employer. That's called a ban against secondary boycotts. And so there's a variety of laws that do limit how workers can engage in collective action. But a key point, I think, to make here is that just means those are not legally protected. Workers can still engage in collective action even when not legally protected. And we've seen a lot of that rising. And so the Red for Ed strike in 2019 was what's called a wildcat strike. It was not protected by our labor laws, but it was still quite effective because it got a lot of solidarity from their communities. It got a lot of really good um, press from you know, national coverage. And so even though that was not legally protected, it was an effective tool for workers to exercise their voice and ultimately get better job quality and make education better in those states. Eric, briefly, what role did the pandemic play in the rise in strikes and union organizing we're seeing play out? Yeah, I think it played a pretty big role. Uh, for one thing, a lot of workers that were deemed essential workers uh, quickly discovered that what that really meant was that their safety was not considered important uh, in American society. Uh, for another, uh, the uh, checks from the government kind of gave, I think, a lot of workers the ability to uh, rethink their relationship with work, uh, rethink what they wanted on the job, uh, you know. And so, and then 
thirdly, especially when we were dealing with teachers, uh, you had a lot of push to get teachers back into classrooms, even if those classrooms were not safe for them. And so by really uh, centering on this issue of workplace safety and also centering on the idea that maybe we could stay at home, maybe we could work from home, maybe we could make new demands on the job then I think that both of those things combined came out of the pandemic and have really informed this move toward a greater labor militancy in the last couple of years. We'll hear more from our guests a little later on. Coming up, we speak to leaders at two of the country's largest labor unions about the changes organizers are pushing for. We'll be back with more after this short break. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. We're discussing the state of the labor movement and its future. Only one in 10 American workers are union members. What role will unions play in American life in the years to come? Let's bring two union leaders into the conversation. Mary Kay Henry is the international president of the SEIU. That's the Service Employees International Union. It represents 2 million members. She joins us now from Miami, Florida. Mary Kay, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Christian Sweeney. He's the Deputy Director of Organizing for the AFL-CIO. That's the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. It represents more than 12 million workers. Christian, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. Well, polling suggests most Americans support unions, and so does President Joe Biden. Here's Biden speaking to members of the AFL-CIO at a campaign rally last month. Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built this country, and unions built the middle class. <laughs> I'm not joking. Without unions, there'd be no middle class. Christian, what role does public opinion about labor unions play in the ultimate success of collective bargaining? That's a great question. You know, right now we're at sort of an all-time high in you know, modern history in terms of public support for unions. Um, Gallup puts that number at about 71% of the American public. You got to get uh, ice cream or get you know, apple pie to get that kind of approval rating. Um, and ultimately, you know, solidarity throughout the broader public plays a huge role in what what pressure employers feel to you know, reach fair contracts with workers who have unions and to uh, support workers who are trying to organize. 
The SEIU is an integral part of Starbucks workers' efforts to unionize around the country through its affiliate organization, Workers United. More than 300 locations have successfully unionized. Since January, the Starbucks Workers United Union has filed more than 500 unfair labor practices charges against Starbucks, mostly alleging retaliation against workers for union activity. Mary Kay, what challenges are Starbucks workers still facing? They are facing an anti-union campaign that... uh, doesn't stop. The closing of stores, the changing of schedules, the firing of uh, union leaders, and uh, most recently strikes for pride that happened when store managers uh, were asking workers to take down uh, pride symbols. There's a bus uh, tour happening right now. The AFL-CIO unions are joining with Starbucks workers in cities across the country. Just yesterday, um, they, we filed for the biggest uh, Starbucks store in Chicago, the roastery uh, there, 200 workers wanting to join a union. And we are calling on the new CEO of Starbucks, Laxman Narishman, to make a different choice than the previous CEO and create a seat at the table for workers to have a national collective bargaining agreement that the 352 stores could be a part of and create a path for workers who want to decide to join the union to do it without having to walk through the fire of an anti-union campaign. And we should know that recently Starbucks employees at locations in New York filed petitions to leave the union. That includes a location in Buffalo, which was one of the first to unionize. There's a group helping those workers. It's the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. The group's president, Mark Mix, said this in a statement in May, quote, as many Starbucks locations pass the one-year anniversary of unionization, Starbucks employees are now able to hold votes to remove the union, a right many are now seeking to exercise. No one who claims to be pro-worker should oppose simply letting these workers hold a secret ballot vote to determine if they oppose union affiliation, end quote. Christian, first, just what is the process of dismantling a union? How does that work? First, it's extremely rare. Uh, Usually workers who have unions do everything they can to keep their unions. Um, But to get to the core of it is basically it's the same process by which you form a union in reverse. You need a majority, you need a petition of workers to trigger an election. Uh, in the instance of decertifications, though, oftentimes, and I don't have any doubts about the case here at Starbucks, is that uh, employers are, you know, sometimes behind the scenes encouraging workers to do that, trying to stack the, you know, stack the uh, deck to to encourage those kinds of those kinds of activities. Good news is that. It's a pretty rare occurrence. But Mary Kay, what case do you make to workers who say the union, for whatever reason, just isn't working for them? Well, in the case of Starbucks, the National Right to Work Foundation is colluding with their anti-campaign by uh, discouraging workers who've been at 80 bargaining sessions and the attorneys for Starbucks say we're not authorized to reach an agreement. And so Starbucks has been using surface bargaining um, as a way to break the union. So, and, and when Starbucks, you say they've been colluding, what what evidence do you have that that's been happening? I think that um, Mark Mix and the National Right to Work Foundation has worked hand in glove with many of our healthcare employers previously. So, I have I don't have evidence in the specifics of the Buffalo store. I have evidence in a forty five year life experience as a union organizer that the National Right to Work Foundation is funded by the biggest employers in this country and has been part of filing uh, lawsuits to weaken unions um, 
home care workers and uh, child care workers in our union and public workers. And so I, I think there is a case that we can make that the employer is dragging out collective bargaining in Starbucks at the Amazon Staten Island uh, facility that voted to go union a year and a half ago and in many other places as simply another way in which they are trying to uh, defeat workers coming together. And the amazing thing about this moment is workers are on fire across the economy, as you just discussed with the previous panel, from Hollywood to UPS to Starbucks uh, to Amazon. I think there is an unstoppable momentum where even with that Buffalo example you gave, we are going to prevail uh, in building the union at Starbucks and across the service economy. Well, we should also note that members of the Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 2, their employees at SEIU, which is based in Washington, D.C., in May they authorized a strike against your organization to push for higher wages. And they also accused SEIU of delaying contract negotiations. How have you responded to their concerns? that we're really proud of the bargaining that we've done in the past eight months with our staff union. We are confident that we are a standard setter on wages and benefits, and we're in a mediation process right now uh, to resolve the differences and reach an agreement with our staff. Mary Kay, we know we have to let you go, but thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thank you. And I want to bring our other guests back into the conversation. Let's turn to the Hollywood Writers and Actors Strike. They're represented by the Writers Guild of America and SAC-AFTRA. And technology, particularly artificial intelligence, is playing a big role in that strike. Michelle in Indianapolis is a former member of SAC-AFTRA, and she left us this message. My name is Michelle from Minneapolis. I have been in three unions as an actor, SAG-AFTRA and Equity. Uh, We were once on strike for nearly two years over cable issues, and at a certain point I realized that my union had done too little too late to really go on the offensive for the membership. And now I feel like AI is that issue. They're facing the same issues once again. Uh, They've done too little too late, and I think the federal government is the only hope they have of really uh, creating a turnaround Mary Kay, how are technological advancements like AI complicating the labor market for all workers, not just those in the entertainment sector? AI is a great example here because um, it is certainly taking on a lot of tasks that people do at work. We see that um, across many occupations, but it tends to not do a great job. Um, And so the economist Duran Achimoglu refers to this as so-so technologies, which basically says that any time technology is still cheaper than labor, even if it's worse at doing the job, employers will probably still opt to do that because they'd rather have a higher profit rate than have higher quality products. And so, you know, if you think of the chatbots that the customer service chatbots that we've all had to deal with before. We know they do a really terrible job compared to a human doing that. Um, But still, employers opt to use those technologies instead of employ people. And I think we could see similar things without appropriate protections for workers in the entertainment industry. And so what we would see is worse acting. If it's an AI-generated image, what we would see is terrible scripts. We've all seen sort of the chat bots try to come up with scripts. They're really crazy and kind of amusing, but they're not as good as something written by a person. And so, you know, I think that's the the so-so technologies argument that employers may opt to do these things that have result in a worse product as long as they're making higher profits. Christian, how have these technological advances really opened a new chapter in what it means to protect workers' jobs? 
I think this story about AI is a really interesting one, and it's just the latest uh, version of a similar story. The technology has changed over time, um, and whether we talk about automation of auto factories in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, or the rise of the internet, um, over and over again, uh, workers have, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bargain to be made, right? There's a negotiation to happen. You're going to have increased productivity, and what share of that is going to go to profits and to CEO salaries? And what share is going to go to the people who do the work? And so, you know, in the, in the entertainment industry right now, we see massive changes, right? The internet has brought on changes. The digital technology has brought on changes in how media is produced. Uh, streaming wouldn't be possible, obviously, without, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, changes in technology. But there's, there's a new deal to be hashed out. Uh, and the, the fight that's happening right now is a fight about where those profits are going to go in the last year. Eight men who head the media companies that are that are that are you know being struck right now um, got you know, earned or earned in air quotes uh, 850 million dollars. That's a ton of money. These companies are are extremely profitable, and the contest is over. You know, what kind of society do we want to have? What kind of world do we want to have? Do we want to have one. Uh, where the benefits go to the few at the very top or where they're broadly shared. That's Christian Sweeney. He's the deputy director of organizing for the AFL-CIO. That's the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. Christian, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. When we come back from the break, we hear from labor experts about potential solutions to the labor struggles many unionized workers are facing. We'll be back with more after this short break. This message comes from Capital One. Offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Let's get back to our conversation with this message we got from one of you. Hi, my name is Maria, and I live in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, I am a member of a union, SAG-AFTRA, and I like being a member of a union because I know that I'll be paid fairly, and the union will back me up as far as work conditions. I know that we're on strike right now. Everybody always wants a little bit more, but union jobs definitely beat non-union jobs, hands down. Maria, thanks for that message. We also got this from a member of our 1A Tax Club. I see labor unions as the only way to save our middle class and blue-collar workers. Congress certainly isn't helping. The wealth of the upper class is beyond reason, and they've gained that wealth on the backs of these workers. Eric, in February, a bipartisan group of legislators introduced the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or the PRO Act, in support of unions. What would that bill do? Yeah, the PRO Act would do a lot, Right now, you know, again, it's very difficult to actually organize and win a union. Um, and the PRO Act would 
solve a lot of these problems. It would uh, take a lot of the tactics that uh, that corporations are able to use against unions, uh, such as uh, you know, such as these captive audiences and delaying the, the contract uh, negotiations and a lot of these other things, and and make that impossible or make that at least technically illegal. Um, it would repeal some of the worst parts of of American labor law over the last uh, several decades uh, that would have effectively make it easier to organize unions. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the the bigger takeaway from it, for those who aren't that interested in specific details, is that it would, it would go a long way to even the playing field again, right? The idea behind American labor law as it was created in the 1930s and 40s was to create an even playing field that if workers wanted a union, they could have a union, right? And if they didn't, then then they would have that option as well. Right. But today, that's almost impossible to actually have that. You know, again, it's also possible to actually win that union. Um, and so what this would, again, try to do is to level the playing field. And so that, let's say, the Starbucks workers, those who have wanted that union, they would have the opportunity to not only win that election, but then get that contract in a reasonable amount of time. And so the kind of activities that the Right to Work Foundation is engaging in today would not be legal. And 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 those uh, workers would already have that contract and be moving forward to making their lives better. Okay, where does that bill stand? Well, the the problem is basically this: so long as the filibuster exists, that's not going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. right? That it was it's central to the Biden administration's agenda. Uh, the idea was put out there uh, very shortly after Biden was elected um, and came to office in 2021, um, and even when Democrats controlled the House, um, uh, it, it simply could not get past the filibuster. Um, and now there's another question of whether every Democrat would support it anyway. Uh, there's some reason to believe that certain Democrats maybe wouldn't. Um, I do think it's worth noting that as a whole, Democratic Party is more pro-labor right now than it really has been since the 1940s. Um, and, and and that's growing, right? And so labor is becoming more of, I think, of a powerful presence within the Democratic Party. Um, but the reality is, is that the structure of American government makes laws like the PRO Act and like so many other policy issues very, very difficult to pass. Let's get to this question. Hi, my name is Chris. I've worked in media and tech for a little while. I've been in a couple businesses where unions have started to form, but I've had to move on before they actually came to fruition. And I've seen a lot of positives and negatives about unions, and I'm still a little clueless. My question sort of is, if I was at a company where a union eventually did form, but I was not part of the union, would there still be any benefits to me? Is a union something that seems to benefit most workers, regardless of whether they are involved in the union or not? Okay, so I want to kind of break this down in in two ways, Kate. When an organization unionize it. It doesn't mean that every employee will be a part of that union. What are some of those dividing lines about whether you're in the bargaining unit or not? That comes down to basically how union recognition processes happen. Um, One common standard is that managers are not in unions, but technically speaking, managers can be in unions. I used to be a union member in the same union as the staff who I managed. It just means you need to have clauses in your collective bargaining agreement that would establish processes for dealing with inter-union member conflict. Um, So that can happen. There can be broad unions within workplaces. I think, you know, unions have to make a practical decision about how can they organize most easily, how can they get a bargaining, a collective bargaining agreement most easily, and often that means they limit the scope of their um, 
the bargaining unit. But then the other part of this really depends on what state you live in, whether you have the option mm-hmm. not to join a union that forms in your workplace. Explain that. Well, that sort of comes down to what are called right-to-work laws. Um, and so, you know, the way that that works is that unions typically, I mean, I think this also gets to the listener question, unions do affect entire workplace processes. And so not only whether you're a union member or not, if you're um, in the bargaining unit, um, you are protected by how um, the union functions, the union's bargaining agreement covers your work. And so either workers will pay dues where they are union members and they pay dues or they pay what's called an agency fee which is lower than the level of dues, but it is in recognition um, for the fact that the union is still establishing their workplace standards for those workers. But beyond that as well, um, unions do have spillover effects. And so, for example, if there is a union negotiation that increases the number of paid time off days um, for union members, most HR departments will just decide, you know, well, that's the new standard for how many days of paid time off all of our staff have. So it does seem to impact that. Um, And then even beyond those workplaces, not just unionized and non-unionized members in those workplaces, they also impact our norms around what we think is fair pay, what we think is the appropriate level of benefits we should receive. And so when we have industries or locations that have a higher representation of unions, we'll also see that people even in non-union workplaces will tend to have better uh, job quality as well. And Kate, outside of better pay and, and benefits for workers and having a space to advocate for that. What are, what are some of the other things that, that unions are pushing for? Um, I mean, I think unions, both they also advocate for public policies that are good for all workers. Um, and so I think that is a really important thing. And I also want to follow up on something Eric had said as well about sort of leveling the playing field. And I think, you know, that just that's not only just nice to have, but that is actually how economies function efficiently. Um, to, the premise of a free market economy is that people are on a level playing field when they negotiate with each other and they decide what are standard benefits, what is standard pay. And so what we have is such an imbalance of power, this very sort of intrinsic imbalance of power when workers have a hard time collectively bargaining. And so when we have unions, it really rebalances power in workplaces, um, in industries, across the economy. And that actually leads to more efficient outcomes. That is where we get maximum productivity. That's where we get maximum social welfare. And so I think just giving workers a voice is not just sort of a rights issue. I also believe it's a rights and justice issue, but it's also an economic efficiency issue. Eric, what effect did right-to-work laws in the U.S. have on organizing efforts? Well, it's a gargantuan impact. I mean, you know, this came out of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, uh, which had uh, led uh, many states to pass uh, so-called right-to-work laws, which mean that you, of course, don't have to be a member of the union, uh, but also that, uh, you know, that, that if if a union is uh, a bargain, uh, and you are not a member, you don't have to pay into that union, right? That the idea of the fair share fee that was discussed earlier doesn't apply to you, right? And and this had been, uh, you know, this was passed in several conservative states, particularly in the South and in the Great Plains. But since 2010, with the rise of the sort of, you know, far-right Republicans around people like Scott Walker, uh, this was pushed in many traditional pro-union states, such as Wisconsin and Michigan. In Ohio, it passed, but voters there overturned it. And even in West Virginia, the home of the United Mine Workers of America is now a right-to-work state. And then at the, and then at the, uh, at the public worker level, the Janus decision from a few years ago from the Supreme Court created that within, at, the, at the public sector in all states. So that means that my own union, uh, which is an American Association of University Professors and American Federation of Teachers Union at the University of Rhode Island, we now have members who are – excuse me, uh, professors who are not union members. 
we still have to represent their interests. We negotiate a contract for them. If they come to us with a grievance, we have to represent them. And yet they pay nothing into the union, right? And so it becomes a, a, a you know, to use a, a term from the labor movement, it's not so much a right to work as it is a right to leech off of those who uh, those members who are committed to the union. Um, and, and it basically incentivizes workers to not join unions. It's been tremendously powerful in American life. Um, and this is one of the things that uh, laws like the PRO Act would begin to push back against. I, I want to make sure, Kate, to acknowledge the fact that historically unions weren't open to everyone. Uh, there were always tensions when it came to race and gender. Have we seen a shift today when we look at the union, the union movement? Well, first, and then, you know, Eric, as a historian, probably knows this as well. There's certainly a history of unions having been discriminatory. There's also a history of unions actually being places of great racial and gender solidarity. And so I think of the general strike in New Orleans in the 1890s was the first transracial general strike in U.S. history. So there is also a history of unions um, being a bit inclusive. While also, you know, it's it's mixed. It's a mixed history, so I don't want to say that it's not mixed. Um, but what we do know is that unions have an outsized benefit for black workers and women workers in the United States. Um, and so they have also been really helpful to um, reducing racial inequity and reducing gender inequity. And where we, what we're seeing now as well is a lot of the growth in the labor movement is precisely those workers who benefit the most from unions. And so SEIU um, that we heard from earlier is a great example. The majority of their workers are women of color. And that is a really powerful union right now. And I think a lot of where we're seeing organizing and interest in organizing, um, like teachers and nurses are predominantly women workforces, um, a lot of women of color. And so we're seeing a lot of growth in the labor movement among precisely those workers who benefit. Several strikes loom on the horizon, including an anticipated strike at the end of the month by the Teamsters who represent UPS workers. Eric, in just a sentence or two, what are you watching for? Yeah, I, I think this could be a, a gigantic strike um, that really uh, takes one of the strongest unions in the country. Uh, that is very angry about their situation um, against a very profitable corporation and really lays out the realities of the modern economy for a lot of Americans. So I I think this could be a very powerful moment uh, in the history of contemporary American labor. That's Eric Loomis. He's a labor historian and professor at the University of Rhode Island. Also with us, Kate Bond. She's the director of research at WorkRise. That's an initiative at the Urban Institute focused on wage growth and career advancement for workers with low incomes. Eric? Kate, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. 
Imagine a house where every room follows a different architect's plan. Doorways don't connect. Staircases lead nowhere. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our complicated system for treating psychosis, one that loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. We'll ask how it got so bad and how it can get better. Listen to Lost Patients from KOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.